He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here. This is the Metropolitan Report. New York and our adjacent states. And we have a great show for you today. We have former Governor David Patterson. Uh, we have Congressman Peter King, Dr. Sky, Dick Morris, and he's got his ear to the ground. Uh, James Scoopers, a state senator. What the heck is going on in Albany? Any common sense? And let's have a report from Eric Schuffler. Is it spring training yet? When are the Ferry Hawks playing in Staten Island? Zach Williams, what the heck is going on in Albany? And let's start off with my friend, Michael Stoller, on his real estate report. And uh, he is one smart guy. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. Today I have a very interesting and hardworking individual who is the guru on real estate, especially residential and luxury residential, Stephen Kliegerman, who is the president and CEO of Brown Harris Stevens Development Marketing. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, Michael. So what's really happening? You know, the press tells you some things, then you read the other regs. Are we in a good time? Is it good to be an owner or a buyer? What, what, what do you see out there? I think right now it's a good time to be a buyer, uh, but it's not a bad time to be a seller either. Uh, 2023 has actually started off relatively strongly in buyer demand. Open house attendance is up tremendously from the fourth quarter of 22. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more contract activity as we went into February. And I, I predict that the next couple of months are actually going to be very active on the buy side. But I do think that buyers have a bit of an opportunity to take advantage of the weakness that we saw in the second half of 2022 and get a slightly better deal than they could have a year ago. Now, where are the opportunities? In the borough of Manhattan or are they in Brooklyn? Mostly, I would say, in Manhattan. Brooklyn has such a small supply of condominiums available right now. Brooklyn's pricing is actually very strong, even up a couple of percentage points year over year. Uh, Manhattan, we're down a couple of percentage points. There's a little bit more inventory in Manhattan, particularly um, in, in the upper end of the marketplace, over $5 million. We're seeing a lot of activity right now in Manhattan between $1.5 million and $4 million. Uh, still a lot of... Uh, Parents buying with their adult children, uh, and the foreign buyer, particularly the Chinese buyer, has come back very strong. So where do we see uh, 2023 with regard to the regular market, the lower price? You're talking about the 2 to $3 million. What about something that's affordable to someone? Well, right now, affordability in Manhattan really falls between about a million and $3 million. Uh, and that's, again, the most active area of the marketplace where supply is actually constraining quickly. So I think if someone's looking for a one-bedroom or modest-sized two-bedroom or even potentially a small three-bedroom in the one to three or three-and-a-half million dollar range, I would be buying now because uh, in the second half of the year, I don't believe there's going to be much inventory at all. You know, we didn't have very many housing starts, obviously, during COVID or just post the, the, the 20. 
2020 to 2022 range. So the number of new apartments being brought to market in that one to three million, one to four million dollar range is very low. Uh, a lot of the development that's occurred throughout Manhattan over the last five years has actually been the upper end of the marketplace, where you know you're talking five million dollars and up, uh, twenty five hundred dollars a square foot and up, and and that's where there's some inventory building up, but the medium size, the the average size apartment, there's actually dwindling inventory. Now, what about the the rental market? You were talking to me outside, saying that. Uh the rental market in Manhattan is as high as $90 a foot or even higher. Even higher. Uh, the, the rental market in Manhattan is trending to $100 a foot, actually. So, the for, rental- for, so for my audience, in layman's language, what does it mean, $90 a foot? You're looking at you know uh, studio apartments in the $4,000 and up range, one-bedroom apartments at five or $6,000 a month, two-bedroom apartments between $7,000 and $10,000 a month in Manhattan. Uh, Brooklyn is trending at $70 a square foot. And in Brooklyn Heights, uh, Avery Hall has a project that is averaging over $90 a square foot. Long Island City is solidly uh, at about $70 a square foot. Upper Manhattan, Harlem, we're getting $60 a square foot at a project that we have called The Smile on 125th and Lexington uh, Avenue. So rents are trending higher. Why? Because, again, supply is low. Uh, there was not a lot of new housing starts over the last couple of years, and demand is high. Uh, students are coming back. A lot of West Coasters and Midwesterners coming to New York City for jobs, and a lot of people who were, uh, you know, kind of pushed out of Manhattan during COVID are now coming back as well. A lot of companies are also finally asking their employees to come back to the office, which is also I- increasing uh, occupancy rates and reducing supply. What's happening in Flushing? Uh, Flushing is, is again, uh, you know, a marketplace that saw the condo market uh, expand tremendously over the last 10 years uh, from a sub-thousand dollar a square foot market to a $1,400 or $1,500 a square foot market. Uh, on the rental side, again, same thing, you know, very low supply. And again, you're looking at rents $60 plus a square foot. But you, you were saying to me that people aren't building today. Because, you know, they don't have an idea what's going to happen with the 421A program. Yeah. So if, if, if a developer already didn't have a footing in the ground, uh, there's, there's really no new development happening right now on the rental front because without a tax abatement, I don't know any developer that can make a rental project work. Uh, and thus, you know, I think for the next three to five years, we're going to be in a housing shortage here in New York. Uh, the only real... Uh, large percentage of inventory that's coming is to Gowanus, which was recently rezoned. And then you've got uh, a, a number of new housing starts coming to uh, Washington Heights and Inwood because of the rezoning in Inwood as well. Uh, and even there, you know, the developers in Inwood had originally projected, or they were hoping to project $50 plus a square foot rents, and we were struggling to figure out how that would happen. But now with where rents are the rest of the city, we think that they're, they probably struck gold. What about Mott Haven? Mott Haven also is about $50-ish a square foot. Absorption's a little bit slower, um, but, you know, with the number of housing starts there and the, the level of buildings that are being built there, we're starting to actually lose uh, Upper Manhattan, Harlem tenants to Mott Haven. So that's, that's happening. I think it's going to take a little bit more time, uh, but it, it, it certainly is not going to back up. I just think it'll take a little bit longer to absorb. What about Coney Island? A couple of developments? 
Yeah, we don't do a lot of work out in Coney Island, but, you know, that area, I mean, you know, has seen a tremendous boom, you know, over the last 15 years, really, starting actually with the condo market, um, you know, out, out in that area. And I think Coney Island's another area, you know, east, e- eastern, eastern Brooklyn is another area that has actually probably the most opportunity for development because there's more land available there. And, you know, now with a lot more people working from home, I think that those opportunities are going to um, be more taken advantage of than they were in the past. When you bring up people working from home, are you seeing more amenities in the buildings for the people who are working at home? Yeah, just about every... workspace and the other amenities. Yeah, just about every building that's being built right now is being built with some type of, uh, you know, WeWork type of... Uh, amenity space and they're getting bigger and bigger but you're also seeing apartments now being built with secondary spaces home offices is is it a time to be a buyer or being a renter what do you what do you, you know if somebody comes to you, should i buy or should i rent well i i'm i'm always a proponent of buying because uh, no offense to to my landlords out there but if i'm going to pay a mortgage why not pay my own mortgage and not pay my landlord's mortgage um, I also think just in time, with the short number of new housing starts in the condo market, I do think we're going to see appreciation in the future. But if you're really looking at a short-term situation, I don't know where I'm going to be two or three years from now, I would probably rent. But if I think I'm going to be someplace three, I would say five to seven years, I would be a buyer. And again, a lot of the buyers that we're seeing right now are are getting assistance from their parents, and a lot of that is wealth preservation uh, and diversity in their portfolio, you know, and a lot of those parents also think that one day maybe, you know, when their adult child moves on to their next place, maybe they'll occupy that unit either as a second home or, or a primary home as they downsize from the suburbs. The residential rental market is strong. The condo market looks pretty good. And things are going to be positive for 2023. I think so. The rental market is certainly strong. The condo market has started off the year in a positive light. Uh, you know, I think the first six months of the year will be excellent uh, for uh, both landlords and both buyers and sellers, frankly. I think the second half of the year, we still have to see how, how that crystal ball looks because, you know, there is conversation still about interest rates rising. So I think, again, if a buyer wants to get into the marketplace, now is the time because rates might go up in the second half of the year. So I'd like to thank you for being here today. Thanks again. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Uh, this is the Cash Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Dr. Steve uh, Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. Now, I'm not sure is it Dr. Steve Cates or just Dr. Sky, but he is one smart guy. He is with us almost every week, and we look up in the sky and we say, well, what the heck is up there? Uh, Steve Cates, how are you? I'm doing great there, John. It is, of course, the Dr. Sky trademark. And we'll move on giving you the greatest information from the journalism world here. So good morning to you and the listeners on this beautiful Sunday morning. And here we begin, John, with a story I think is most important. It's about the Perseverance rover on Mars. Many people may have not noticed this anniversary. It celebrated two years on Mars. It's a fascinating story. And maybe many people don't know, but a Martian day, John, is 39 minutes longer than a regular Earth Day. So they call them SOLS, S-O-L-S. So this particular spacecraft has been on Mars for well over 710 SOLS. So what's its mission? Its mission is to collect rocks and soil samples that hopefully one day will be returned to Earth. 
It was launched back in July of 2020, and it landed in this most amazing crater. They selected it very carefully, a dried-up lake bed called Jezero Crater. But the most amazing thing we've been talking about, John, over the last long period here on your show is about this technology demonstrator called the Mars Ingenuity Helicopter. That's a lot to say. Did you know that it's flown 30, excuse me, 43 flights as of February 16th, and it was only designed for a 30-day flight? So isn't that amazing? This little technology demonstrator has proven, you know, all the skeptics and those that said, nah, you can't fly a helicopter on Mars. This is quite amazing. What do you, what do you think? So it flew the, its longest mission and uh, it made it back to the landing pad and, and landed correctly. I mean, uh, he, uh, I, I guess it's amazing. Totally amazing, John. Its first flight, it actually flew 16, fleet, 16 feet vertical and 9.8 feet as it went across the surface of Mars. But how about this? Here's the latest weather forecast from the Perseverance rover as of February the 18th. Ready? The high temperature of the day was 1 degree Fahrenheit, and the low at night, Anybody out there that likes cold weather, they'll love this. Negative 116 degrees Fahrenheit on Mars. The sun rose on the surface of Mars on that day at 6.08 a.m. I guess they call it Martian time. And it set at 6.37 p.m. But the journey, just to get there, and I know we've talked about this and you've talked about this, the dangers with Dr. Mikolos, radiation problems, all kinds of things. You have to shield the astronauts. John, you and I and whoever else would go would take a nine-month journey at some 24,000 miles an hour. It's got to cover a distance of 300 million miles, so you're going to be pretty brave to do that particular mission. They have to find a way to get there faster. Absolutely. A new rocket technology is just around the corner. But one of the things that I know that you enjoy and I enjoy talking about is the mystery of the week. And we've got a good one this week, John. What did the universe look like 13 billion years ago when the universe supposedly was created in this Big Bang expansion 13.77 billion years ago? Well, some answers that are quite surprising. The James Webb Telescope took some images of some galaxies in something called the Pandora's Cluster, located in a southern constellation called Sculptor. And what they found they found galaxies that go back to 13.1 billion years ago. These are little tiny red dots on the imaging that Webb gave them. But they've analyzed this and said that doing their mathematics and everything, they contain over 100 billion stars. So the point is, this is the mystery. How did galaxies form with that much mass when they, according to the you know, general story that cosmology has been talking about and the science for so long, that it took a lot longer for these galaxies to form. So this is quite interesting, John. These objects are only 700 million years old after the expansion happened. So we're going to probably have to rethink all of the theories about how the universe was created. It's just so amazing that James Webb can peer back almost to the moment of creation. I find that fascinating. It is fascinating, and I'm sure there are things we don't know, and maybe... Our, our human minds are not capable of being able to expand the mind large enough to, to realize what the truth is. Agree very wholeheartedly with you, John. And, you know, there's things that people can actually see with our minds and our eyes. And for this particular weekend, I would recommend looking at the beautiful conjunction of both Venus and Jupiter. They're getting closer and closer. And by the end of this upcoming week, there'll be the separation of a full moon diameter in the sky and if you really want to try something very cool, look on your star charts. It's easy to see the constellation of Orion. 
And, John, right below the three belt stars is an Orion Nebula. It's about 1,300 to 1,400 light years away. It's the birthplace of stars, and it's an easy enough object for people to see in a simple pair of binoculars. And we love to talk about this and remind everybody to go to the Dr. Sky Experience here at WABCRadio.com for great information on all these topics and other great guests from American Exceptionalism that we are so proud to talk about. So that's pretty much what's happening this week. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. And maybe in the future, you'll give us some research on people are saying uh, that the moons of Mars may be artificial moons. Maybe the Martians went there. The moons of Mars were discovered in 1877 by an astronomer called Asaph Hall. And this is going to be a mystery we'll talk about. Guess where he discovered it? Right at the vice president's house which is the Naval Observatory back then. You're right. It's a fascinating story, and we'll dig deeper into it. And the mystery and moon around And there's stories. Satellite. And there's oh, stories amazing. that as, as, as uh, Russian rockets were approaching one of those uh, moons, that mm-hmm. it was either went blank or was shot down. Absolutely. The mystery of those is called Deimos and Phobos. And you bet, John, we'll be giving you the cutting-edge information that people want to know about these great mysteries that are out in the universe. Look forward to talking next week. God bless you. Thank you so much. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. With us today is Eric Schuffler. He's the operating partner of the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. And we're here to get an update from Eric on what the heck is going on. Hey, John, it is a huge week for New York City's third biggest and best baseball team, your Staten Island Ferry Hawks. We are doing our first ever Hawk Fest, which is an open event at the stadium, Staten Island University Hospital Community Park, for all our fans in Staten Island, Brooklyn, Manhattan to come out to the park and meet our new manager, former New York Yankee and 1998 World Series champion Homer Bush is going to be there live in person, signing autographs, meeting fans, talking about the upcoming season. And when are we going to do this? March 4th, next Saturday at the stadium from 10 to 2 p.m. So March 4th, Saturday, 10 to 2 p.m. with Homer Bush. Well, you know what I might do, uh, Eric? I might be there, too. And maybe I'll give away a few books. I have heard you have a really awesome book coming out. I got to read it as a sneak preview. And it's an amazing story, John, of what you've achieved, the opportunities you have pursued and what you've made of them. And we're going to love to kind of let some of our fans in Staten Island meet you and see some of the books. So Saturday, March 4th, and what time? 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Staten Island University Hospital Community Park. We're right next to the ferry, easy parking nearby, great neighborhood, uh, great park. And I understand you can take the ferry from Manhattan, lower Manhattan, uh, and go right to the backside of the, uh, within walking distance of like 100 feet It is uh, of the stadium. The traditional Staten Island Ferry comes right to us, and the new fast ferry comes right to the stadium also. So we got a bunch of other and stuff then, going and on. And this is free admission. Uh, free admission. 
open to everyone, no tickets necessary, and the College of Staten Island, you know, one of our great partners with Coach Mike Morrow, they're going to have their home opener at noon at the stadium. John, we're really lucky. Not only do we have our Ferry Hawk games, Wagner baseball plays there, NYU baseball plays there, College of Staten Island plays there. We're really making this a, you know, New York City's newest year-round sports and entertainment venue. So it's a community center for all New York City and a baseball team and and the third best baseball team in uh, New York City. You have the Yankees, you have the Mets, and then you have the Ferry Hawks in Staten Island. Exactly. And, you know, one thing we've got going on right now with the help of our partnership with New York City, we have all new seats being put in the stadium. So they look phenomenal. And our fans who come down on March 4th will get a sneak preview. And if they want to buy tickets and ticket plans, they can do so. And they can pick out their seats right there. Well, I look forward to seeing you next Saturday. And uh, God bless you. God bless New York City. We've got to bring New York City back. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, John. You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers. It's the Cats Roundtable. Comes true on Sunday in New York. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back. With us today is a state senator from Albany. And we have a lot of interest of what's going on in Albany. His name is uh, James Scoofus. And uh, three uh, three terms in the state senate, uh, and now uh, and also before that the uh, state assembly, and uh, Mr. Scoofus, th- there's so much controversy going on in in Albany. Nobody knows if we're zinging or zagging. Nobody knows who's really going to be the future governor. Is it going to be the state senator? The state senate going to be the governor, or is it going to be Governor Hochul? Uh, what say you? So I say Governor Hochul's the governor. But there are co-equal branches of government. And look, we obviously just went through what we went through with her judge nominee. And I think one of two things is going to happen here. Either we're going to hit the reset button and we all act like adults. And this is what we should do and negotiate a budget and have a good budget and a good session. Or World War III begins, I, which I certainly hope doesn't happen because I'm interested in government. So look, you know, I think that there is a lot of controversy around housing. There's a lot of controversy around bail still. Uh, and you know, as someone who's in the more moderate faction of the Senate Democratic Conference, I, I want to make sure that we fix these problems. I'm a big believer. Look, people don't expect a lot from government. They want a good school to send their kids to. They want good hospitals if they get sick. They want repaved roads. They want public safety. Then they want some help on taxes. That's about it for 90% of people. And we as Democrats shouldn't lose sight of that fact. The political scene, in, certainly in Washington, but also now in Albany, it's become very visceral. And either you're you know, with us or you're the enemy. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, I certainly have relationships with a number of Republicans. One of my good friends who just, uh, he did not run for re-election last year. Senator Martucci was a Republican. He and I worked together on a whole host of issues for the Hudson Valley and, and up in Albany. Uh, but we were the exception, not the rule. Uh, it's a shame. And then look, you know, this goes back to the point I just made. I, you know, we had a strong disagreement on the chief judge nominee. I, are we able to move forward after this disagreement? 
or are we able, are we not going to talk to each other for the next you know five months of legislative session? You know that's going to determine whether we have a good session, a bad session, a hostile session. At the end of the day, we all represent the same people. Those are the folks we have to respond to. I think we got to work together. Otherwise, it's not going to work out well for them. In the United States Senate, there, there are senior statesmen. They should be acting better. In the state Senate, uh, you guys should be our senior statesmen for uh, New York. And and whether the Democrats or Republicans, you guys should argue. And but. At the end of the day, you have to make a deal. Um, we got a couple minutes left. What else would you like to say to all New Yorkers? Uh, law and order. People, 484,000 people moved out of New York City, New York State. I think on Thursday's newspaper, it said that mostly a lot of millionaires moved out. I mean, you guys could pass all the budgets you can, but you're gonna run out of you're gonna run out of money. What do you do then? Those are the two reasons why someone might contemplate leaving. There's no question about it. They don't feel safe. They feel like they're giving away too much of their money to Uncle Sam. And on public safety, look, the governor has proposed uh, undoing this least restrictive means part of bail reform. I'm supportive of her proposal. There are a number of us in the Senate Democratic Conference who are. And, and that's going to be the big fight around public safety this year. Yes, we've got to provide tools to make sure that people who have mental illness aren't shoving people into subways. We've got to provide tools to law enforcement to make sure that homeless folks who are on the street are able to get treatment and able to get the services they need. But we also need to provide the tools to prosecutors and courts where if someone's got a rap sheet, if someone could be potentially dangerous if they're let out without pretrial detention, that court has to have some means to keep the community safe. And right now, the proposal on the table from the governor would help provide a new tool to those courts, and we gotta get that done. That is the most important thing in the public safety debate happening in the budget right now. Senator Skoufis, tell that to your fellow senators. Common sense must prevail. You know, we can't allow more people to move out of New York City, New York State. We're gonna run out of money sooner or later. Uh, and uh, God bless you, and uh, God bless America, and uh, we hope that common sense prevails. Thank me you. too, and thanks for having me on your show, John. With us today is former Congressman Peter King, and uh, formerly a member of the Homeland Security uh, uh, Force, and uh, Congressman King, uh, Sunday morning, what are your thoughts? What's going on? You know, the big issue now is an abdication of responsibility or a failure of leadership by you know, by this administration, uh, what happened in East Palestine, uh, the that horrible uh, train derailing, the explosion of chemicals in, into the air and into the soil, into the water. And uh, listen, those things can happen. I can even understand why for a day or two, maybe the administration didn't realize how important it was. But it wasn't so, you know, the other day, it wasn't until uh, uh, Thursday of this week that finally Secretary Buttigieg showed up. In the meantime, he'd been giving speeches all over the country talking about equity and uh, diversification of the uh, workforce, not even mentioning East, East Palestine at all. They should have the EPA should have been there. The, the uh, uh, FEMA should have been there. Uh, and uh, somebody should be helping those people. They're American citizens. Yeah, these are suffering Americans. And I was trained in the Homeland Security Committee. FEMA was under my jurisdiction. And when you have an incident like this, not an incident, a tragedy like this, FEMA should be in there right away. And uh, in this case, you had FEMA saying, first of all, this wasn't the type of tragedy that was covered by FEMA. Well, that makes absolutely no sense at all. And if that were the case, then they should get immediate authorization and do everything they can to get FEMA in there as quickly as possible, uh, giving aid, uh, finding out exactly what happened, how to prevent it, what should be done. 
uh, you know, going forward? How can they cure it all? How can they do all the testing? EPA should have been in there much more quickly. And they should have been much more transparent with the uh, people. And so when the people are told, okay, you know, the water is pure, the water is clean, and the air is pure, the air is clean, and they, and they see hundreds of dead fish, they see uh, the uh, clouds in the air, the smell in the air. Uh, it's just uh, the people don't have confidence. And it sends a terrible signal to the rest of the country because whether you're Democrat, whether you're Republican, it doesn't matter. I mean, uh, this to me, these are, these are Americans, and you, we have an obligation to come together for them. And in this case, the Biden administration really failed. They were so slow. I, I can't, to me, if, if this were probably some other area of the country or some other location, uh, where there was some specially affected group or something, uh, I think uh, the Biden administration, you know, would have been right in there. But it's almost as if uh, these are basically, uh, uh, you know, lower income people living in a uh, somewhere off in Ohio, which has now become a Republican state, and they just didn't show the same interest that they would have shown, I believe, if, if this were a uh, uh, a, a more uh, say challenging area. Because right now, Ohio is a definitely a Republican state. It used to be Democrat. It's not turned Republican. I just think that the uh, Biden administration consciously or subconsciously turned a blind eye to the suffering people in Ohio. Let's go back to New York City, New York State, Long yep. Island. Uh, I mean, uh, what a mess we have. John, what strikes me, and maybe it's a metaphor for everything, is to see in the 34th Street area, uh, we have Macy's and Penn Station, and it's such a landmark for uh, New York. It's that the merchants, the store owners, have to hire dogs. How many stores do you go in when they say uh, all shoplifters will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law? What does that mean anymore? It means you're going to go to court, the judge is going to send you home, and they're going to give you a ticket maybe to appear. I mean, you find these people when they are arrested, 17, 18, 19, 20, prior arrest, and they haven't spent more than an hour in jail. So there has to be, the cops have to be allowed to do their jobs. There has to be strict enforcement of the law. And we have to get away from this culture of crime, which is really, to me, tearing away the soul of the city. I agree with you 110%. Congressman Peter King, maybe we need you back in Congress again. And uh, thank you very much for everything you've done and continue to speak out for our country. Thank you, John. But I'm, I'm all tied up working for WABC. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. With us today is former Governor David Patterson, one smart guy, and he's going to give us the problems of of our city, our state, our country. Uh, And uh, Governor Patterson, where do we begin? John, I think we begin with the issue of appearances versus professionalism. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times you can be very professional, but if it doesn't look like you're doing anything, then the public, when you're in politics, uh, frowns on you. So let's take the issue of the terrible train crash in Ohio, which we talked about last week. And uh, after that, it certainly appeared that uh, Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, was almost acting as if he didn't need any help. And whether he was or he wasn't, he didn't get any because uh, it didn't seem to be forthcoming. Now, this is around the time also that President Biden goes to Poland and then secretly goes into the Ukraine and comes back. And, you know, it's kind of a, a, a daring thing to do, which is fine. But um, at the same time, the heads of the agencies have to be doing something. And I think the best thing for a head of an agency to do 
when the president's out of town with the uh, apparently sweeping viruses and effects that human beings are getting from the fire and from the tragic accident, we um, would have thought that someone of decision-making capacity and someone who was senior would have gotten there a lot sooner, wouldn't you say? Well, I was very disappointed because, to me, when Americans suffer, and Ohio is middle America, when Americans suffer, the president of the United States, the FEMA, or whoever is involved in helping them, they don't ask, is that a Republican state or, or, or a Democratic state? They're Americans, but they need help. And I was right. very, very disappointed that the help was late in coming, and some of them didn't wake up until a former president, uh, Donald Trump, went to visit there, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, Ohio exists again. And, and I, was, I was disappointed as an American. Well, he, um, I must admit, lit a fire under the situation by going there. And then you started to hear about some of the policies that uh, were taken by his administration, which may not have helped the situation. But I don't think that that's something you bring up after he's gone there to expose the fact that you haven't sent anyone major there. And, you know, it's just um, it's just a matter of, as you said, not really looking at it as a political situation, but looking at, at it as a tragic accident. What can we do to help the people immediately? What can we do long term to make sure this doesn't happen in others? And I hope those people, uh, there's a lot of questions to be answered, uh, Governor Patterson. The question is, uh, why was the train so long, 151 cars? Uh, why did it go on for miles and miles and miles uh, where an, an alarm should have went off that, that the, those cars were overheating? And I think you've told me most of that stuff. And 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 with our open borders, down, is it is terrorists or possible sabotage coming through those open borders? I mean, uh, what say you? Well, the, there are sensors on the railroad tracks that are supposed to send a signal to the engineer of the train if the track gets too hot, meaning that a fire is starting. That didn't happen in that particular case. And also they had highly explosive material on the trains. That's what really elevated the situation beyond even just the crash itself. And in, in that case, it's not clear whether or not they should be allowed to carry that amount of explosives on one train. So we'll be looking to see how the investigations bear out in the future. But I thought maybe we'd have a little lighter note, John, which is that um, about a month ago, Mayor Eric Adams was at uh, holding a press briefing, and I don't know where he was, but he was talking about different things, and he was talking about the migrants and uh, where they might be housed if they're, you know, because the city's filling up. And he just made this flip remark: maybe it'll be in the Nassau Coliseum. So Newsday has a sort of separate publication that they put out called The Point, and The Point put that in their article. Well, at that point, um, a whole lot of Long Island officials started to get upset about the Nassau Coliseum. The uh, county executive of Nassau, Bruce Blakeman, pointed out that to put migrants in that facility would violate the terms of the lease that's there, which should have ended the discussion. But the discussion continues to go on. 
Eric Adams has no power over Nassau. He could send them there, but Bruce Blakeman in Nassau County could send them back. I heard that. I heard that Mayor Adams wanted to send them to Canada. <laughs> well, I'll say this: I have just been amazed at how this story has gone gone around and gotten, you know, debated back and forth. Congressman Peter King was involved. Curtis Lee was involved. But the but the real issue is that. Adams was making a flip remark. He just said it. You know, it wasn't anything that he meant. And uh, and yet, two weeks later, they're still debating it. So I found the whole situation amusing. Well, listen, uh, Adams is, uh, he, he can make jokes about things. He's a human being. Curtis makes jokes about everything every other day. So what else is new? Yeah, and some of them are even funny. <laughs> But I think that uh, it, it, to me, was just a very good example of how a little remark kind of made, you know, at the end of a press conference in jest, created so much commotion and everybody on Long Island has to talk about it. And uh, uh, it's, uh, I guess, in late February, when there isn't that much going on in the news, it was really quite entertaining. Uh, you have given a lot of advice to Governor Hochul, which was all good advice because you you were the governor and uh, you got things done up there. Uh, when is the when do we cross the line where uh, we're going to find out who the real governor is? Is it the state senate or is it the governor? I think it'll be in the budget process. Because, and when does that come due? Uh, well, the budget is due on April 1st. New York is the only state whose budget is due. April Fool's Day. Yes, and I'll tell you what. Uh, now, they say that they are cooperating with each other and they've put, in, put the past aside, even though there's still one judge short on the Court of Appeals. But it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I remember my first year, uh, and, and remember... I didn't start my year until March 17th when I became governor. We actually passed 27 three-way agreements. In other words, where the Assembly, the Senate, which at the time was Republican Joe Bruno, and myself were able to agree on these issues where we had previously disagreed, and it tied Governor Pataki to the highest number in a semester. I would love to see Governor Hochul and the legislative leaders, amid all the criticism that they've received, try to beat that record and show that Albany can work a lot better than perhaps it has in the past few months. Well, I pray that uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans work together for a better New York City, better New York State. Uh, Governor Patterson, thank you so much, and we'll catch up again real soon. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Hope the coffee is staying warm in the Cats Roundtable, and... We have some pretty good discussions this morning. With us today is uh, Zach Williams, and he is the star reporter from the New York Post reporting on what the heck is going on in Albany. Uh, Zach, well, another week has gone by. Who's in charge? Is it the legislature or the governor? (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on. You know, this week was what uh, is a bye week for the legislature. So they didn't meet. Everybody's back in their districts. But certainly there is a lot of suspense when it comes to the upcoming state budget. You know, the governor 
um, after losing the fight to um, over the nomination of Hector LaSalle, uh, you know, is now looking to move on. Both she and state Senate Democrats say, you know, that bitter fight will not affect uh, ongoing, um, you know, negotiations over possible changes to bail reform and expansion of charter schools in New York City. And of course, this very controversial housing plan the governor has to basically, you know, push local municipalities, um, including New York City and its surrounding suburbs, to really increase the number of houses that they're producing by um, loosening their zoning laws. But You know, the week really began with a bang with one particular issue that really is one of those that just breaks through a lot of the noise. The name of the Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. That, of course, was the nearly four billion dollar structure that Governor Andrew Cuomo pushed state lawmakers in 2017 to name after his famous father, the three term uh, governor. And now a Democrat is sponsoring legislation to strip the name, restore the Tappan Zee moniker that the locals you know, continue to call this bridge. And it's just one of those issues, kind of like bail reform, kind of like to go cocktails in the past that, you know, kind of your average Joe can really wrap their head around. And people just really want to change that bridge's name. The governor, of course, is still, uh, you know, keeping her options open. She says she hasn't made up her mind on that one. But boy, even when they're not here in Albany, there's no shortage of uh, things to talk about. That's for sure. Well, that's going to be an emotional thing for uh, Andrew Cuomo and his mom. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, uh, political watchers often say that, of course, you know, the governor who or the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, who would talk all the time about his father, Mario, who he undoubtedly admired uh, quite a lot, along with many other New Yorkers. You know, he couldn't name the bridge after himself, of course, so he chose his dad and you know, it's it's just been a, a source of simmer, simmering resentment out there in Rockland and Westchester counties and, and across the state. You know, people call it the Tappan Zee, and then you pass a state law to name it after uh, somebody who, you know, admittedly didn't even ever want public uh, works like that. You know, Mario Cuomo was infamously modest, if you will, when it came to, you know, having his name uh, put on, you know, big public works. He refused to even sit for an official portrait in the Capitol. So... You know, it'll be interesting to see where this thing goes. And it's a rare um, point of agreement from, you know, Democrats, uh, all, you know, and Republicans alike. Well, that is uh, quite a, a mouthful. Uh, any other areas? Uh, bail reform. Uh, are we going to be safer? Well, and at the beginning of March, the governor will release what's known as the 30-day amendments to her budget proposal. Now, all eyes are on whether she's going to continue pushing for a very substantial change to to um, bail reform, which would eliminate this legal standard where judges have to release criminal suspects with the, quote, least restrictive conditions ahead of their trial. Now, this is something that judges and prosecutors have complained a lot about. They say it kind of handcuffs them, you know, depending on the situation, you know, oftentimes, you know, they're saying, hey, this person might be a danger uh, or might reoffend. Um, but we simply had to let them go because legally, by what they were charged with, they could not be held by, um, you know, by a stricter standard. So that's that's going to be in the cards. And of course, we still got this chief judge situation. There was a lawsuit, a hearing last Friday. I remember we talked about it. Decision came down this Tuesday basically said that the state Senate must have four votes on future 
judicial nominees. Now, this is a huge bone of contention between the state Senate and the governor because the state Senate Democrats said that a simple committee vote ought to suffice. So, you know, it might sound like a lot of legalese or, you know, insider game, but long story short, you know, all laws, including bail reform, are open to interpretation by the Court of Appeals, New York's highest court. And sometime at the end of March, in April, the governor's going to name a new nominee to replace uh, Hector LaSalle, who's, of course, voted down. And, you know, it might come down now to a floor vote with Republicans, maybe siding with moderate Democrats. We'll just have to see who she picks once a state uh, commission on judicial nominations finishes its work sometime in the coming weeks. Well, Zach Williams, uh, I pray for our city. I pray for our state. Uh, thank you for the update, and uh, God bless uh, New York. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you. With us today is Dick Morris. He is was President Clinton's strategist and Donald Trump's strategist and maybe current strategist. How are you, Dick Morris? I'm good, John. I'm doing well. There's so many things happening in the world, uh, Dick. What would you, where would you like to start with today, this morning? Well, I think there's been a fundamental transformation in the Republican nomination race for president. And I think Donald Trump is in the process of delivering a one-punch knockout of Ron DeSantis. And while he's at it, Mike Pence. Uh, both of those guys have endorsed the plan that Paul Ryan put forward when he was speaker to raise the retirement age of Social Security to 70, to lower the cost of living adjustment, and to give people the option of privatizing their Social Security benefits. Uh, and th- those, are, those amount to very significant cuts in the Social Security program. And uh, DeSantis voted for them in 20, 2013 and 2015. I think it might be 11 and 14. And I think that was the kiss of death. I think that he cannot possibly win an election with that. Uh, Trump has hit him on it, and uh, Trump will be like a bulldog sinking his teeth into that issue and never letting go, because Trump opposes any cuts in Social Security or Medicare. And for good measure, Mike Pence just stupidly announced that he's agreeing with DeSantis. So it's not just a one-punch knockout, but knocks out two guys with one punch. And I believe that Trump had been doing, is doing very well anyway. He's bolstered his lead, according to the latest McLaughlin poll. When I say latest, I mean yesterday, uh, to 18 points over DeSantis. And Pence is still in single digits. Well, uh, Dick Dick Morris, I, I understand that, and uh, I don't think anybody uh, d- denies the fact that they think that uh, uh, President Trump is capable to, to do knockout punches against a lot of the current uh, Republican uh, presidential yeah, candidates. Uh, but but the question is, uh, can he achieve 51% against the Democrats? Well, I think he can. But we're not up to that yet. We're talking about this election. Yeah, he's he's had a five-point lead over Biden now for about four months, and I think he's in good shape. And who knows if it'll be Biden or there'll be a fierce Democratic primary. But I think that the major change in the last three months is that the 
DeSantis has faded. He's lost about 15 points of support in the hit matchup against Trump. And with the Social Security position, he's absolutely killed himself. And what are you, what are you going to be talking about? You're going to be on a noon time today from 12 to 1 on WABCradio.com and 770 on the dial. What are you going to be talking about? I'll be talking about Social Security and Trump, and I'll also be talking about a surprise challenger to Joe Biden in the Democratic primary that could make all the difference. Understood. Well, look forward to listening to you today at noontime, and we'll catch up again real soon. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Metropolitan Edition of the Cats Roundtable. After the news, stay tuned for the National Edition and get some real news from the leaders in our country about what's going on in the world.